following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to look with me and follow as I read today from the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll read the first 13 verses. Listen to God's Word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, so consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then he made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And he made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's holy word. Let's start with a quiz. 
I promise you it'll be real easy. What one person's name is mentioned about 600 times in the Old Testament and almost 60 times in the New Testament? Question two, aside from Jesus, what human biography is the most fully documented in all of the Bible for sheer volume? Question three, whose leadership catapulted God's chosen covenant people, Israel, from being a ragtag confederation with very little formal organization about them to become a real kingdom, a national power, supreme above its enemies and wealthy and strong? And last question, what person is described as being so great in the pantheon of human beings, at least, that Jesus Christ is described as the final heir of his throne. Well, there's no surprises. You all got a hundred. The answer, of course, to all the questions is David. The biblical David is quite an amazing figure. Today, if you visit Israel or you're aware of the news about Israel, you'll often see that white flag with the blue star of David on its flag. Of all the leaders Israel has ever had, modern or ancient, David is the one who stands on, who's represented on their national emblem today. And I've said to you, we are beginning a study of the life of God's great champion, King David, the man with a God-shaped heart. He was the eighth son of Jesse. He was the second king of Israel and apparently the greatest, and he was the human prototype of Christ. We believe he was born at Bethlehem somewhere in the vicinity of 1080 B.C., and his name means beloved. Now, he did have, obviously, quite a few talents, but we're going to see today that it wasn't his talents alone that caused God to choose him. What were those talents? Well, he was a musician of sorts. He was able to play on a harp and sing with some skill. He certainly was highly intelligent. We know from the Psalms that he wrote that he had literary skills and gifts that I don't think it would really be an exaggeration to say approached those of a Shakespeare in our literature. And he had great military courage and prowess. His story is a story of courage, a story of great friends and great enemies, of wives, several of them, lovers, boisterous, undisciplined children. It's a story of humiliation as well as exaltation, war and peace, joy and depression, crime and forgiveness. He endured humiliation. He climbed heaven's heights of spiritual worship at times, but he also, I think, visited something close to hell's depths of distance from God on some occasions. He showed capabilities of being a great saint, but he also was, and we should never forget, a great sinner. If God 
takes in his hands the raw clay of sinful humanity and says, I'm going to shape and mold a vessel for my purposes, it seems the result would look like David. He became known as the man after God's own heart, but he didn't have that label because that's the way he was when God first found him. Not at all. He was molded into that by a long process of divine work and suffering and growth. But above all things, we can say, and our text today tells us, David was chosen without question by God. In 1 Samuel 15, last time we saw how the people of Israel made a choice. They said, give us a king. We want to be like every other people. We're tired of this call to be holy and distinct. Make us like everyone else. A king should be able to do that. And so they got a king, and God was actually in that selection process, but not exercising his choice, exercising the choice that he knew would please the people. And so they got Saul, a king who was about pride and vanity and politics, who quickly demonstrated that he was not yielding to the Lord in the ultimate sense. And Samuel, the prophet who was involved in that king-making, you see, is in a very vexed state as we open 1 Samuel 16. The, The king that he has been involved in pointing out has proven to be at least to Samuel's God-focused eye, a big disappointment. And Samuel says, wait a minute, I I was the one who proposed this fellow. Look at what he's turned out to be. You wouldn't feel good if you were Samuel. You'd be embarrassed at the spiritual weakness of Saul. But almost immediately after realizing that embarrassment, God is going to use Samuel now in our text, 1 Samuel 16, to show his choice, not the people's choice, God's choice for a chosen king. I wonder what you think about the idea of a person being chosen by God today. Maybe you have a a notion that you say, well, sure, there are special individuals. Maybe I'd concede that God chooses preachers and missionaries and calls people to special service like that but he hasn't chosen me. I'm operating on the thesis that God has chosen you. If you are his vessel, he has chosen you for a particular vocation, even if you're retired today. He's chosen you for a place in society and life that only you can fulfill in exactly the way, with the exact qualifications and experience and character that he has designed for you to have. There are roles that our lives carry out which no one else's life can exercise in just the same way. And the emergence of David, yes, of course, king of Israel is a a big and prominent role in history, and your role doesn't perhaps seem as prominent as that. But nevertheless, particularly if you're a believer in Christ, I know that God has chosen you for some places of significant service. And he knows what he's doing in his choice. Today, we're going to see that he is able to equip people for the choices that he makes for them to fulfill. All the choices of God are choices that make a difference in time and eternity when his people are yielded to him. 
First of all, then, in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 5, I would say this to you. God chooses spiritual leaders to bring his people new hope. He'd been doing that in the book of Judges. Every time a big crisis came, there was no king on the throne. And people perhaps thought, what will we do now? Some big enemy had arisen. God brought a leader. He brought a judge, a prophet, a Gideon, a Samson, someone like that to lead his people in a significant way. But they stopped trusting in that bring us a leader in the moment we need him process. They wanted a permanent leader. So now God brings new hope as he appoints a new leader. The voice of the Spirit of God whispered in the heart of Samuel, fill your horn with oil. This wasn't an announcement or something written in the sky. Samuel didn't get a letter. The Lord moved his heart and said, take your your flask, the same flask of oil that you used to anoint Saul, and, and go to Bethlehem and find the house of a man named Jesse, and I will show you. And I, I particularly like the way our ESV translation, I think, very helpfully translates God saying, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, you say, well, what's going on here as Samuel goes and the people are uh, a little worried as he comes? Well, prophets don't show up at your door every day, I'm sure. And prophets didn't stroll into Bethlehem every day. In fact, so important was the office of the prophet that people often knew when, when he came around, maybe there was some bold announcement or some bad news or some judgment from God to be pronounced. And so they would be a little worried. What is the prophet doing here? But he puts them at peace. The Lord had told him to lead a heifer with him and in sincerity, say, I'm going to make an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, and you're welcome to join in it. And so it was a very natural errand. The town council came together and calmed themselves, and the prophet said, where's Jesse? I would like Jesse to be here. And so Jesse and his sons came too. You see, there had to be a certain amount of undercover work here, because if the word got back to Saul and and the prophet knew it, that if He was out canvassing for a successor to the king. That wasn't exactly going to go well with Saul. So the Spirit of God had shown Samuel which household to approach, but even prophets don't know everything in advance. You see, even prophets walk guided by faith, and and he knew only Bethlehem, Jesse. Those were the two words he got. The Lord's sense to Samuel was, I'll show you the rest. Just go step by step with me. Isn't that the way God's Spirit leads us? Not usually telling us the eventual outcome of something, but saying, take this next step for me, and then I'll show you another step and another one beyond that. So Samuel came, had his sacrifice in the belief that God was sovereignly controlling things on earth. That's a belief we need to have. You know, we sometimes make choices of things. We decide on a a job offer and and take it up or a house to buy or some course of action for our family. And maybe that choice begins to come apart a little bit at the seams. I've certainly been there before. 
even in choices involving ministry in the pastorate, I've gotten ahead of God and done things and maybe pushed the buttons a little faster than he wanted them pushed, let's say. And I've had to back up and say, Lord, wait a minute, why is this not working? Was this my choice and not yours? If so, what are you telling me? Lord, have you chosen something better? What do you want me to do? When I finally ask that is when God begins to work. And let's confess, sometimes we're not really asking, what do you want me to do? We're saying, this is what I want to do. I'm sure it'll be okay with you, won't it, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? That's the question here. I want to point out that when we speak about God choosing David here, you might immediately think that we're talking about the subject of divine election to salvation. Well, not exactly. We're talking about God's choice of a vocation and a task. But of course, election is in the background of this. In fact, we can say that one of the great problems with Saul as we look at his whole life from beginning to end is especially how he dies and how he ends, he apparently ends as a godless man, not chosen by God for eternal salvation. Saul is thought of by, I think, universally as not elect of God. He died a reprobate. Now, if God wants a proper king, he's of course going to want a king who, according to the words of Ephesians 1, is chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. Well, David was that. God's choices are redemptive choices. There are people who are themselves redeemed, but it's not divine election that's in the picture here as much as God directing David into a role, a vocation, something to do, a task that was just for him. Now, secondly, We see demonstrated as we move to verses 6 to 12 of our text that God's choice often defies human wisdom. Jesse had seven sons. They must have been quite a team. You know, they could have been a pro basketball team with a couple of subs sitting on the bench. And apparently, we're only given the names of three of those seven besides David the eighth. We're not even given all their names, but there's some kind of a beauty pageant going on here. Eliab steps forward, the oldest, the big brother, the one who organizes all the touch football games in the yard and umpires and tells the other brothers what to do, the impressive one. Actually, you realize Eliab is, is basically just another Saul. You know, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was qualified to be a governor... It would seem like Eliab was qualified to be a king. And once again, here's the prophet leaning on the wisdom of man, thinking to himself, aha, here's the one. But the voice of God says, no, not that one. And then the second, no, not that one. The third, not that one. All the way through the seventh. All of them somehow by the whisper of God's spirit were found wanting because man and God don't perceive reality the same way. Verse 7 is really the key verse of this chapter. It jumps off the page. Man looks on the outer appearance. God looks on the heart. Isn't that so true today? We think of our American society, 
how much attention is given to creating wonderful appearances of things. And the appearance, and sometimes we call it the spin that we give something, matters much more than the substance. If you're going to sell something, you're going to sell it based on someone's perception that this is attractive, this is good, this is desirable, I need this. And all you have to do is get the customer to the point of sale. You don't have to be all that concerned about what happens afterward when they taste or use or find that the thing that they've purchased really isn't at all what they thought it was because they've paid their money and they've made their choice. Image is the big thing. External appearance, and yet we're told here that external appearance in human beings neither qualifies you nor necessarily disqualifies you before God. We're not saying that, that those who are good-looking or those who are naturally talented or, or highly intelligent are disqualified from God's choice, but we're just saying it really doesn't matter to God. The outward appearance doesn't matter. God desires truth elsewhere, it says, in the inward part. Now, Samuel probably wondered by the time he had reviewed seven in this Miss America pageant going on here, all-male pageant, have I come to the wrong house? And he must have looked at Jesse and said, wait a minute, do you have any more sons? You know, you could think perhaps that Jesse was hiding David, but I believe the sense of the text is not that anybody was hiding him. It's actually even worse than that. They forgot about him. He didn't matter. He was the runt the Hebrew has an interesting word, and commentators make a little fuss over the word, hakaton, which means literally the runt of the family. He doesn't count. We have him out there with the sheep while we're grooming all these other men for military careers or law or medicine or business or something like that that will count David. He just keeps the sheep. He even smells like sheep most of the time. He doesn't matter. Samuel begins to guess that God is doing something and says, quick, call him in. I want to see him. David is like Cinderella. Remember the scornful stepsisters with all of their hypocrisy and pride, and they think they're the great beauties of the land, and they want Cinderella to run and fetch for them and so on, and she's nothing. She lives in the corner and does our bidding and doesn't count. Well, election by God for tasks that he has his people to do, we are told this lesson time and time again in different ways in the Bible, doesn't reside in the human idea of who is impressive or whose resume jumps off the pile as the most strong and, wow, we've got to look at this person. In fact, that law called primogenitor, which in ancient times meant the oldest son was always the one who got the inheritance and got the farm and, and got all the best privileges. God violated that law time after time after time. From the very first human family onwards, Abel was second born. And it was firstborn Cain who was the great sinner. And God preferred, preferred the line of Abel. He did the same with Jacob, choosing him over Esau, with Joseph ahead of older brothers, a number of them. God does not look on the same things we do, and in fact, 
Mark chapter 10 has Jesus saying, many are first who are going to be last. That doesn't say they don't count at all. It just says they're not what you think they might be. Paul said it a different way in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following, God chose foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose lowly things and things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one would boast before him. In other words, when God's choices succeed and shine, you're going to say that was not of man alone. This is a very important point. You know, we're inclined to still think that, well, God chose David because David had this whole secret package of of great gifts, you know, a literary talent, a musical talent, a military talent, and God knew that he was just a bundle of talent bursting to get out. I think not. I think we're led to believe that the reason God chose David was not for anything that he was or any attribute of him that was in him latently waiting to bud and bloom, but rather because he was a man so small and so empty that God could fill him with whatever he needed to fill him. He was empty enough to be submissive, to basically say, here, here I am, Lord. I, I don't know what I can do for you, but if you want to use me, go ahead. That, I believe, is the quality that is essential for great godliness, that you're empty enough of yourself that God can fill you with himself. See, submissiveness doesn't mean sinlessness. We find that out with David. He sins in shocking ways later on. He had multiple wives, and he knew that that wasn't God's will. He had a man killed in order to claim the man's wife as his own. But even when he was a mighty king flexing his power, David was still enough of a nothing with enough of an empty place that he was able to see even at the peak of his powers and the peak of his sinfulness, God, I'm yours. He was able to fall down and say, God, forgive me. God, use me. God, make me the person in this situation that might be your vessel. God doesn't necessarily oppose handsome or talented people, but it wasn't David's being handsome or having sparkling eyes that the text notes that caused God to choose him. It was his emptiness and his ability to submit. Revelation 22 has an interesting thing where the author says he's actually speaking the words of Christ, and therefore they are some of the very last words of Christ in the Bible. As the Savior there calls himself the root and offspring of David. That means Jesus Christ, the eternal king who came from heaven, is saying, I came into the world to be like David. Because like David, Isaiah said, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was basically a nobody. 
coming from obscurity. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? You kidding me? When you're born in Buffalo, you identify with this, you see. Jesus began in obscurity. He was a nobody. And yet God raised him to the highest place of all because the dominant attribute of the existence of Jesus on earth as a man was unwavering obedience and submissiveness to his Father. It wasn't that he was the Son of the Highest present at creation. It's that he was a human being completely surrendered to God. I remember words of Dwight Moody, some of you probably heard before, that that man, a great evangelist in the late 19th century, simple man, didn't have an awful lot of education, but greatly used by God. And he said something like, the world has yet to see what God will do in a human life that is completely surrendered to him. I am determined to be that man. And God greatly used Dwight Moody with that intention. No human vessel chosen by God should ever be able to egotistically gloat and say, of course God chose me. Why, he had the privilege of choosing me. Why wouldn't he choose me? There are people who criticize the, the Puritans of several hundred years ago because they were strong in their doctrines of election and predestination. They said, oh, those people were full of ego. That is just completely false. Generally speaking, there were no people more spiritually humble than the Puritans who were constantly saying, why would God choose me? Me? And they gave God the glory for anything that was accomplished to his name and to his praise because of that. Well, thirdly, this morning, 1 Samuel 16, 13 shows us this, a greatly encouraging thing, that God's Spirit equips each one whom the Lord chooses. We read, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David Now, this was a private ceremony going on here. Samuel didn't announce in the town square, I am now about to anoint the next king of Israel. He didn't apparently even say that to Jesse. Jesse and the brothers were present. They must have wondered, what's the prophet doing with our runt-of-the-family brother? And it seems that the meaning of it was not explained necessarily or that you know, they were meant from that moment on to know that there was a king in their family. And by the way, we'll see in succeeding chapters that one of the next things that David does is go back to the sheep. He doesn't immediately start forming a cabinet or announce his plans to say, I will now have a plan of succession for the throne of Israel. Nothing like that at all. He doesn't lift a finger to take the throne from Saul, to mention this. And we think that even his family didn't understand until later on what Samuel's anointing meant. But the significant thing here is what the Spirit of God did. He rushed upon David. He filled the man. Now, the important point to make is this is the same Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian. 
You say, well, wasn't this a special endowment for the king of Israel? Well, in one sense, yes, certainly in that day when the Holy Spirit wasn't given to all believers. But yet it's the same Spirit who comes upon his people when we profess Jesus as Lord and who indwells us. That Spirit equips and fortifies us for our struggle to be his man, his woman, his young person in any calling of life. We sang this new song this morning before the sermon. The second verse of it talked about God's equipping. I don't know if you paid attention to what you were singing. We said, He floods my weakness with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise is enough for every step I take, sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so if he chooses you to bear some vital task, I've said to you, God is calling you to something. You say, well, what in the world is God calling me to? Well, don't you believe he calls you? If indeed you are a parent, don't you believe that's a calling from God? If you are a husband or a wife, don't you believe that's a unique role that nobody else has in the exact same way with the exact same people? If you're called to be an elder or a teacher or a physician or a nurse or a caregiver for an elderly parent or a leader in business or you go on and on and on, college student, God has called you to fill that role and be the vessel of his Holy Spirit in that role. And you can rest assured that the work of his Spirit is going to equip you for that calling. Now, That is not to say that the calling is going to be simple and flow smoothly because God's Spirit is with you. Was that true of David? Did he have a simple, smooth road from this point on? You're going to find out if you don't know. I maybe speak to any of you who are in the category of young people from your late teens into your 20s. You feel like, well, it hasn't really been demonstrated yet what I'm going to become, what career I'll have. I'm still preparing. I'm not sure where I'm going to end up, let me, let me warn you. It may be that those most conscious of God's calling and of His Spirit upon them have His Spirit working because one commentator said, when the Spirit comes to your life, you can be sure trouble is about to start. What is, why do you need the Holy Spirit? You know, if life was easy and just unrolled smoothly, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. You could handle it in your own strength. We need the Holy Spirit for the conflict of life, for the difficulty, the discouragement, the loneliness, the sense that, where am I going? What's happening? Is anybody in charge? That's why we need the Spirit. And God makes vessels of His Spirit in the midst of hardship, patient prayer, and even suffering. We're going to see David spending a decade before he gets to the throne. A decade when a king wanted to kill him every step of the way. That's not exactly some people's idea of God's calling, but it's God's idea. Jesus, the Son of God, was filled with the Spirit at his baptism. Remember that? What was the next thing, the very next thing that happened to Jesus when he was filled with the Spirit? He went into the wilderness 
and faced off with Satan in temptation. I think the commentator was right who said, when God's spirit comes in power, watch out because trouble may be near. But you can believe God is with you in that. And based on David and others in Scripture, we can say God doesn't choose people to serve him and then abandon them. Say, hey, I've called you to a great task. Here it is. Here's my spirit. Goodbye. Come and see me when you die someday and you show up in heaven. That's not the way my God works. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us to our wits. He fills us with wisdom and strength. And he does that in day-by-day parcels not a year's advanced supply, not 10 years advanced supply. David got the supply of God's equipping that he needed for the next day, the next step, the next task. And that's how God works with us. Every believer in Christ is sealed by the same promise, Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God, so we dare not say, God has turned me loose on this vocation, this role in life, this task to do, and left me naked of any equipment to do anything about it. Not true. God sees your heart like nobody else sees your heart. There are things, you know, husbands and wives who are here who have great marriages, who communicate really well. I know, and I know this. I've learned a couple things along the path. I know that no matter how great your marriage is for 40 or 50 years, there are things you know about yourself that your husband or wife doesn't know. Guess what? God knows those things. And he knows them better than you do, let alone your spouse who knows you best. He knows what he is capable of molding you into to fulfill his purposes and to take on roles in life, whatever they might be. Maybe a a retired person in some position of service to others. You have the leisure to do that, to invest your life in other people as a volunteer. That's a calling. It's not just a recreational activity. God knows what he can do with you and what his spirit can do. We don't have a proper estimate of ourselves. We think we know ourselves. We don't. God knows us best. You may have been battered in early life by someone, a parent or someone else, telling you you would never amount to much or at least treating you like you weren't very special and very talented, very smart. And you might get to a point, you know, where you feel so low that you could say something David wrote in Psalm 22. On one occasion, he said, I am a worm, not a man. You wonder what all was going on there. I'm a worm, not a man. Well, I'm here to tell you about the God who stooped from heaven's glory to choose human worms from the human dung heap whom he can exalt and use and set among princes of this earth for his purposes. Every Christian's life is rooted in God's Holy Spirit, empowered by His Spirit. And the characteristic that He is building and seeking in you is that submissiveness, that you would so seek after Him the way David did. And and that means you're going to go down some dead ends, you're going to get wrapped up and captivated in your own pride and, 
and fail sometimes. David will fail greatly. We'll see this in weeks to come. But yet he turns back and he turns back and he turns back and he says, God, I want you more than I want anything else. I want your direction, your purpose, your glory. How can that be achieved? God chooses vessels to display his glory and show off his son. Human vessels. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray together. Father, there are things people here are facing that they may think have nothing to do with a calling from you. But if it has to do with being a parent, being a wife or a husband, being an employee or an employer, being involved in a ministry, it's your calling. Every task in our lives is from you, unless it's entirely from our sin. So, Lord, we pray that we'd be mindful that you equip those you call. And what you equip us with is your Holy Spirit. And that was the instrument David had against the giant, against the hateful king, against surrounding armies, against sexual temptation, against every kind of thing he had to face. So God, teach us to triumph by the possession of your spirit in our emptiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.